greetings and welcome to episode 12 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have what is hands down my all-time favorite topic, empires of the steppe. Now what we're really going to be talking about are northern hybrid states, but empires of the steppe is a much more poetic way to talk about northern hybrid states. We'll get to the details in a minute of what exactly we mean by a northern hybrid state. What essentially we're going to be talking about today, our topic, is the role that nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples have played in the history of continental East Asian states. And we're not going to just be talking about East Asia today, uh, because nomadic peoples have played an outsized role in the political and cultural and ethnic history of all peoples everywhere where you have domesticated horses. All right, essentially all of Eurasia, okay, wherever the horse can get, that's where you're going to have an outsized role of people on horseback influencing the affairs of sedentary, literate states, okay? And this is such an important topic because nomadic peoples have, have really undergone a, well, how can we put it politely, uh, a uh, unfortunate fate, uh, uh, an, unfortunate, an unfortunate reversal of their fortune over, I'd say, about the last, uh, oh, 200 years or so, 150, 200 years, uh, nomadic peoples went from really recurrently being at the top of the socio-political hierarchy uh, about half the time throughout Eurasian states um, to being almost immediately overnight being put at the bottom of that hierarchy, um, and almost totally impoverished and dependent on the sedentary states that they once once used to conquer with such regularity. Now, before we talk about the role of nomadic peoples in creating political organizations, first we need to talk about the origins of nomadism in general, and what sort of unique political and military advantages nomads will have that people who live in sedentary states will not have. Remember, I gave you a preview of this topic before in which I said uh, several times throughout this podcast that the n people in northern China, northern East Asia, will almost always have a monopoly or a near monopoly on political and military power. But after the Great Southern Migration, they will be dependent on the economic and cultural resources of the South. All that tax revenue, all that rice, all those you know huge urban uh, conclaves of educated people uh, who can serve in a bureaucracy. Uh, you want to harness those resources and uh, bring them to the North. Uh, but you know the ability to win battles will always remain in the North. Okay, the, the route of conquest in East Asia goes from north to south the vast majority of the time. It's pretty much unheard of for a state that originates in the south, in the Yangtze River area, and then conquers all of the north. They can do a little bit of the north, but they cannot conquer the nomadic lands, what we often think of today as the state of Mongolia. Of course, that didn't exist back then. All right, so the origins of nom 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 nomadism. All right. It's a result of Eurasia's vast steppe lands, okay? lands that are suitable for seasonal light pasturing okay? uh, on, on a rotating basis. You, 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 you can use these lands lightly, and you have to move around in rotation 
throughout the year and on a year-by-year basis, all right? The, 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 these are lands that are not suitable for intensive agriculture, all right? You cannot farm them year after year after year and expect that the soils will still be suitable to uh, uh, bear, bear crops the following year, okay? Mo- many of the lands in what we now think of as the Chinese heartland are suitable for that. Oh yeah, you got to invest a lot of work and labor into it. I mean, you got to use fertilizer and rotate the soils and all these sort of things that I don't understand because I've never been a farmer. Uh, but it's possible to keep those lands fertile almost forever. Okay. Um, step lands, step with two P's and an E, that step, not, you know, the steps that you walk up, um, you know, stairs. Uh, step lands are, are more fragile. They'll have some vegetation. Okay. Um, they're often at higher altitudes, or they might be on the fringes of deserts. Okay, it's enough to feed some animals if you have a carefully planned migration route where you say we're going to stay in this steppe land, this pasture land, for two months, and then we're going to move to another one and use that. And then next year, we're not going to come back to these. We're going to go to a different pasture land. And maybe you'll have like a five-year cycle in which eventually you get back to your your starting point. All right, you got to be very careful with pasture lands. Because if you overgraze them, if you overuse them, uh, they won't grow again. And then you're in big trouble. Okay? Um, So that's really what we're talking about, the ecological dynamic. Okay? Now, you're probably thinking... Uh, you know, when do nomads sort of come on the historical scene? Uh, you know, it must be if, if people are wandering around and with, with no fixed abode, uh, that probably is a more primitive state in the evolution of human societies. Um, actually, that's not true. Nomadism follows agriculture. It follows the settling of dense urban towns. Only when you have settled people who have domesticated the horse, the cow, sheep, goat, yak, only when you have domesticated those animals can you then leave the towns and then start to graze the pasture lands, the steppe. Okay, because you cannot take wild animals and have them do your bidding and say, okay, you know, zebras, I'm going to take 500 zebras and you're all going to follow me up into the mountains and you're going to graze here for 10 days and then we're going to move to another location, you're going to graze there for 10 days and then I'm going to, you know, kill some of you and take your, your, your fur and whatnot, uh, slit your throats, we're going to use you for food and then the rest of you are going to follow me again year after year after year. Wild animals don't do that. All right. Only domesticated animals can be coerced into doing the bidding of humans on a reliable, regular basis. And anim- uh, uh, domesticated animals are tamed in the cities. Okay, they are not tamed out on the pasture lands. Right? So what you actually see in the historical record, archaeologists are able to determine this: that agriculture and cities come first, and within these settlements. Horses, cows, goats, yaks are domesticated, oftentimes to assist in agriculture. And then, somehow, we're not sure exactly the dynamic of how this works, people from the cities, perhaps they're marginal people, perhaps they're impoverished people, who knows, maybe they're not, 
and they have other reasons for leaving. But they will begin to take these domesticated animals out of the settled environment. And they'll discover that if they're careful and they plan well, they can live an entirely separate existence from the cities out in the fragile pasture lands on the fringes of settled society. But you have to have those domesticated animals first before you can have nomadism. All right. Now, there are unexpected advantages of the nomadic lifestyle in political and military terms. Okay. That, you know, we're not premeditated. No one knew this was going to happen. It was just, you know, nomadism started to evolve, and suddenly people realized, hey, there are some advantages to this that give us uh, 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 political opportunities, military, military opportunities. All right, and there are three of them. The first is that nomads will find that the best horses are, bre- are, are bred out on the steppe, not in the cities. Okay, the best horses will be bred outside of cities, you know, in the open air, moving around on a migration basis. All right, so nomads will eventually come into possession of one of the most important sources of military prowess in the pre-modern and the pre-industrial world. Prior to the creation of tanks and mechanized warfare, all right, horses were, you know, horses were the tanks of the pre-industrial world prior to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, horses are what determined what won battles. That gives you mobility. Okay? And nomads tended to have the greatest number of horses and the best horses. Okay? And we have these wonderful stories. If you, you know, start paying attention to this in the historical records, you, 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 you find out that the sedentary peoples knew this. The emperors, the kings of wealthy sedentary states knew that in order to get the best horses for their army, they needed to have alliances with nomadic uh, federations, with nomadic tribes. Because that was where the best horses came from. That is what will give you the leg up on the battlefield. Uh, Zhang Tian, an emissary for the Western Han Dynasty, was sent off uh, famously on a mission to Fergana, the Valley of Fergana in Central Asia, to find the source of what was known poetically as the blood-sweating horses. Okay, you know, there is this myth that these you know, wonderful blood-sweating horses, I don't know why sweating blood is so wonderful, but apparently it is, these, these magnificent blood-sweating horses, maybe that'll strike fear into your enemy when they see them. Yeah, that, would, that, that would scare the shit out of me, uh, horses sweating blood charging at me. Um, and he was sent to Central Asia to find the source of these blood-sweating horses in hopes that they would be able to strike an alliance with the tribes that raised these horses and, you know, contract with them to, to get a certain amount of these horses for the Han Dynasty armies. All right, when the British took over India, or began to take over India, the British East India Company, to be more accurate, um, in the 18th century, one of the very first things that they did was they sent an emissary uh, up through northwestern India into Central Asia trying to find a reliable source of superior horses. So if we're going to be in India for the long term, we need some horses that we don't have to cart all the way from Europe. And we know, instinctively, the best horses come from nomadic peoples in Inner Asia and Central Asia. Okay, so nomads have the advantage of having a a near monopoly on the quantity and especially the quality of horses. And everyone knew it. This wasn't a secret. The second major advantage that nomads will have 
is they can't really be defeated. Uh, ugh, sorry, they can't really be defeated in any decisive military sense. Right? Nomads don't have bases. Yes, some nomads will be semi-nomadic, and they'll have areas that they farm on a uh, semi-regular basis. All right, there's very few actual 100% pure nomads that just constantly move about and do pasturing only. Most nomads will have some sort of a farming interest somewhere, although it's often very small. Okay, that said, nomads don't have a fixed abode. Okay, you can't strike out into the steppe, into the desert, and say we're gonna we're gonna deal a decisive blow on to this nomadic confederation once and for all. All right, nomads are very good at running away. And there is no shame in running away. It's seen as clever. You know, it's seen as stupid to be ashamed of running away. All right. you, that's how you defeat sedentary armies. You draw them out on a long campaign where they have this long chain of supply. It's very expensive. You, you have some precision strikes to sort of goad them into coming out and thinking that they can, that they can defeat you. And then eventually, they're going to starve, or they're going to, you know, go thirsty uh, when their chain of supply is stretched too thin. And then you can attack them. All right, so nomads have no shame in running away whatsoever. That's how you defeat and exhaust and demoralize armies that come from sedentary lands. All right, so that's very important. You might win the battle. Wait, what is the phrase? You win some you can win this, but you can't win the overall thing. Whatever the small thing is, you 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 can win the small thing. Alright? You won this time, but the larger battle is unwinnable when sedentary states are pitted against nomads. Okay. The third major unexpected advantage of the nomads is that they find that they often are subsisting in an area of Eurasia that gives them middleman trade uh, uh, trade status relative to sedentary states. All right, if people from China want to trade with people in the Middle East, okay, it's not going to be one person going all the way from Xi'an, the capital of uh, you know the Tang Dynasty, uh, all the way to Baghdad. Uh, but in many different stages, eventually, there will be caravans that go from one end of Eurasia to the other. You have to pass through nomad lands, nomad-controlled areas, okay? And because the nomads can easily run away and then show up whenever they want to and attack you when you least expect it, you have to deal with that threat. So you have to buy them off. You have to enter into an alliance with them. You have to have some sort of a relationship with the nomads that ultimately is going to be favorable to the nomads because they're going to, you have to buy their protection. They can offer a protection racket. Because they can halt trade, long-distance trade, if they want to. They can also facilitate it if it's in their interest. So what the nomads have, in an economic sense, is leverage over sedentary states that depend on long-distance trade to accumulate much of the goods that they want to accumulate. Now, with these advantages, the nomads will be able to, you know, meddle, <laughs> uh, uh, interfere, or if you don't want to have a negative judgment, just get involved, participate in the political affairs of major sedentary states all the way up until the Industrial Revolution. These advantages will be useful. 
Okay, and it was a great run while it lasted. We're talking about two thousand years. All right, the horse, you know, is domesticated. I think it's something like one thousand BC or something like that. The dates change depending on what part of Eurasia you're, you're talking about. What we need to know is when you start having horses that are domesticated to the point where you can ride them into battle. And I believe a date that's often put forward for that is around five hundred BC or so, at least in East Asia. You know, and then you figure you're going to the Industrial Revolution, a little over 2,000 years, okay, in which nomadic peoples repeatedly conquer or at least heavily influence the largest sedentary states and empires, okay? And it's not just East Asia, the Middle East, India, Russia are repeatedly conquered by nomadic peoples. Okay, for several hundred years after the death of Genghis Khan, it was still seen as a mark of political legitimacy for rulers, you know, from the Middle East all the way to China, to be to have some sort of a connection to what was known as the Chinggisid line, descendants of Genghis Khan, the Chinggisid line. You want to marry someone who is descended from him, all right, somehow. Uh, that would be the mark that you are destined to rule right? for hundreds of years after the death of Genghis Khan throughout Eurasia. It was very important to try to associate yourself somehow with Genghis Khan's descendants. Remember in episode two, China Before China, I said, you know, uh, you know, in about history of 2,500 years or so, East Asian continental history, we have about 80 significant states worthy of the name with their own kings and maybe 10 bona fide empires. Remember the difference between an empire and a state. An empire contains substantial ethnic and cultural and linguistic diversity over a large swath of land that a, a state doesn't have. A state is much, much smaller in scale. All right? And as a result, an empire has to have unifying projects, cosmopolitan unifying projects that, that convince the elites of all the constituent components of an empire that uh, you have something in common with other elites in this empire. And therefore, you shouldn't secede and try to leave this state. All right, so 80 significant states and about 10 empires. Nearly all those empires, pretty much all 10 of those empires, maybe eight of them, and about half of those 80 states were heavily associated or even founded by what we often, in scholarly terms, refer to as northern zone peoples peoples that came from modern-day Mongolia or Inner Asia, Central Asia, more generally. Okay, Most of the large empires, the greatest empires throughout East Asian history, and about half of the smaller states uh, were either founded by or half of the conquering force was provided by a marriage alliance, most likely, with nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples. This is why the Mongols and Turkic-speaking peoples have played such an outsized role in Eurasian history. So many states and empires will be founded um, by Turkic-speaking peoples and uh, Mongolian-speaking peoples. Now, what sort of conditions put nomads in power? For here, we need to have a new framework. We need to think in terms of what we refer to as exposed versus protected zones. This is a geographical framework. What is an exposed zone? All right, exposed zones are what nomads like. 
An exposed zone is anywhere where armies of horses can move unimpeded over great distances with easy access to sedentary targets and easy access to escape, an easy route of escape after they've attacked a sedentary target. Okay, where do we find exposed zones? Oh, northern China. All right, that's the whole point of all that wall building, whether you want to think of it as the Great Wall or just a bunch of walls. The whole point of wall building was to provide a geographical barrier against the northern zone nomads that Mother Nature failed to give you. She didn't give you some, you know, mountains or an ocean or something that would impede the path of the nomadic horses. So you're trying to create your own. That's the whole point of the walls. Okay, much of Russia and Eastern Europe. Well, you, you can consider as, as exposed zones. All right. Lots of Turkic peoples and Mongol peoples would actually rule over the Middle Eastern populations. If you know your Roman history, you know the outsized role that Germanic tribes, the Huns, played in Roman history. All right. That's, that, that's the same thing that we're talking about in East Asia. Uh, much of the Middle East is an exposed zone. Very little, very, very few barriers to armies on horseback. And northern India. Northern India is an exposed zone. All right, in which you have conqueror after conqueror coming out down from horseback from Central Asia, taking over northern India. All right, what is a protected zone? By contrast, a protected zone is anywhere where armies of horses cannot easily or quickly move about, or where sedentary targets have natural barriers of protection provided by Mother Nature. Large rivers are usually not sufficient protection. They are temporarily, but eventually the nomads are going to figure out how to build a boat. Or they're just going to conquer people who know how to build boats. Okay, Large seas, bodies of oceanic water, often are sufficient protection. So, where do we find protected zones? Well, southern China is a protected zone by virtue of the fact that it's blocked by northern China. The nomads are coming from the north. Okay? Uh, in order to get to southern China, Yangtze River and all that, they have to first conquer the north. So the south is protected by the north. And then once you get to the south, it's much more mountainous and hilly and dense. And then, yes, you also have a lot of water. Now, the water itself is not going to keep the nomads out forever. If they're really determined and really powerful like the Mongols were, they'll eventually take the south. Uh, but it is sort of, you know, a temporary uh, inhibitor. And something that will give the nomads something to think about. So southern China is absolutely a protected zone. This is why oftentimes you don't see nomads conquering southern China as often as you will see them conquer north China. They will constantly conquer north China. Uh, they will only occasionally conquer the south. And at great cost. At great loss to life and limb. Japan is a protected zone. Protected by the ocean. By the sea. Okay, Southern India is a protected zone, just like southern China. It's protected by the north. Southeast Asia, almost all of Southeast Asia, both island and uh, uh, continental Southeast Asia, is considered a protected zone. You have dense jungles and mountains, uh, and you're just protected by other states like India and China. Uh, it's very hard for nomads to get to you. Okay. Uh, Australia, obviously. Uh, the Americas, obviously. Okay. If horses can't get there easily, domesticated 
rideable horses that you can take into a, 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 a battle, uh, then consider yourself living in a protected zone. Now, if you're living in a protected zone, what you're going to find is that you will have fewer, what we might think of as foreign outside rulers. Okay? Because outsiders find it very difficult to get a mobile army into your domain. If you're living in an exposed zone, you can expect that you will have ethno-culturally alien rulers half or the majority of the time. Because horses allow people to move great distances, so you're going into a different ethnic and cultural realm. All right, so exposed zones are marked by constant outside rulers who come from a great distance and, you know, are not going to look as much or sound as much or dress as much. You know, they're going to have a lot of customs that are very different than you. Okay, whereas if you're in a protected zone, like Japan, the people who grow up in that plot of land will rule over the people who also live on that plot of land. In other words, you'll have native rulers. This is why Japan is very unique in having this, you know, 1,200-year history of emperors um, that are all drawn from the population of Japan. You don't have outside rulers like you do in, in Chinese history. In Chinese history, you have to deal with the fact that almost half the time, over the great sweep of 2,500 years of history, um, and pretty much almost all the time, you have an enormous empire, uh, it's, it's, it's ethnocultural outsiders who are different from what we now think of as the Han people. Okay. Um, in places like Japan, protected zones, you're going to have, uh, your rulers are not going to come from so far away. Let me put it that way. At, le at least until you have the maritime nomads, the rise of the maritime nomads. All right, there is such a thing as maritime nomads. The Vikings are one of the best examples of sort of a pre-modern maritime nomad. Uh, later on, something that probably many of us are more familiar with, you're going to have people like the Portuguese, Spaniards, the British, um, who in many ways, in the early days at least, um, were sort of like nomads of the sea. All right, they used their superior military power for quick, concentrated military strikes far from home, for economic profit. That's exactly what the nomadic peoples did on land. And if things got too hot, they ran away. But they didn't run away. They got in their ships and they floated away. All right, and it's only later that just like nomads, the nomads of the sea will get slowly drawn into entire empire-building projects when their successful raids and their increasing wealth inadvertently tip the scales of power where they realize, oh my god, we actually destabilize the whole region, and there's now a power vacuum. If we want to keep making the profit that we once made, we have to actually go in and rule it ourselves. All right, Land nomads and sea nomads rarely set out to conquer empires. That was seen as a burden that you would rather avoid. You went out to make money and do it as easily and quickly as possible, and then get out of there. The irony of that is that that usually led to... Um, being, becoming intricated, uh, uh, drawn into the affairs of the area that you once just wanted to raid. Well, now you sort of have to rule that area. Now, for a nomadic power to rise, one of the most difficult tasks is to create unity among the tribes. This is, a, this is always the Achilles heel of nomadic confederations. Okay? Uh, it's very difficult to get the tribes to work together. 
because they can leave any sort of alliance pretty easily as well. And it's kind of hard to punish a tribe that doesn't want to work with you. You have the same problem that the sedentary armies have. It's going to be hard to, to deliver a decisive blow against them. Okay, Leadership is very, very personal among nomadic peoples. Now, this is why you'll have a lot of powerful nomadic states that on their own oftentimes can't really turn the corner and conquer the sedentary states all by themselves because they'll find that every single time their top leader, the Khan, dies, everyone else sort of drifts away and fights among each other um, and the confederation collapses. Now, this is why most of the, of the successful northern hybrid states in East Asian history will actually not be purely nomadic conquests. They will be nomadic tribes that formed a you know, sizable confederation of their own, but then they allied with prominent families or military uh, 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 interest groups in the sedentary heartland, and then together they'll go down and conquer the rest of the Chinese heartland. That's more often than not, that's what happens. Alright? If you want to think in modern day ethnic terms, it'll be an alliance between some Han general or Han wealthy family located in the northern part, the Yellow River area of continental East Asia, and they'll ally with the most powerful nomadic group. The Khitan, the Jurchens, the Mongols, the Manchus, whoever it might be. Okay, and pretty much in every case, that's actually what happens. It's not, you know, oh, most of the time, it's all the time. That's how the northern hybrid states come into existence, and that's why they're called northern hybrid states. Not just nomadic states, because they are hybrid creations. Okay, now, in order to get strong enough where a sedentary general might want to ally with you and conquer the world together, you're going to need a steady, reliable source of material rewards that will bring more nomadic followers and more tribes into your fold. That's how you increase the size of a nomadic confederation. You have to have gifts, you have to have wealth, you have to have women that you conquer in battle, the spoils of war that you then distribute among your followers in a patronage relationship. As long as you have stuff to give out, People will join you and they'll stay with you and they'll continue to fight with you. Okay? So you can see the motivation to constantly go on raids. To raid vulnerable, fringe-settled farmlands so that you can get what you want. You can, you can plunder the wealth of a borderland town. You can take their women and marry them off or sell them as slaves, men as slaves as well, to your followers. And then everyone's happy that they're getting these things and they'll continue to fight for you. And your confederation gets larger and larger. Now you begin with raids. But the goal, if you're ambitious enough, is to graduate to the next level of rewards. And that's a treaty. What you really want is a treaty. You want to form, you want to enter into negotiations with a large sedentary state where the sedentary state will come to the following conclusion. They'll say, we could try to fight you, and that's not going to work because you don't have a base that we can destroy. We're just going to expend a lot of money and blood in trying to destroy you, and it's never really going to work. Or we can give you a treaty in which we will stipulate a certain amount of silk and silver and other things that we will give to you every year in exchange for you not attacking us. It's basically a protection racket. 
Okay? So this is what you often will see. You'll see, you know, the Han Dynasty does this with the Xiongnu people from 200 BC to 200 AD. The Song Dynasty will do it with the Khitan and the Jurchen peoples. Then one of the most famous treaties is the Treaty of Shanyuan in the year 1005, in which the Song Dynasty, so tired of attacks by the Khitan people, they say, okay, okay, we'll send you the equivalent of 1.5% of our annual tax revenue in the form of silk bolts and 100 ounces of silver. Every year we'll give this to you. And the Khitan said, wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll stop attacking you now, as long as you send the tribute. Except it doesn't always work like that. Treaties are slippery slopes for the sedentary state. Why? Because the chain of command, the leadership organization of tribal confederations, it isn't like Han Feitze talking about bureaucracy, a faceless bureaucracy during the Qing dynasty. Remember Han Feitze? Okay, everything's got to be airtight, the faceless ruler, the cogs of the bureaucratic machine work seamlessly. No, 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 no. Even in the strongest and most tightly run tribal confederations, the lower cons, the lower chiefs, have a significant amount of autonomy. Okay? And anytime one of these guys isn't happy with their share of the loot, with their share of the spoils that are being sent out in the treaties that the con of all cons has negotiated on their behalf, he's just going to take his men and he's going to go out on a raid on his own. The con is unable to prevent all of his underlings, all of the chiefs who follow him from continuing to attack the sedentary state. He can't do it. Uh, raids will still happen. And he'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't authorize this, I'll punish this guy, and the Song Dynasty will say, great, you better. Uh, but ultimately, he can't. Okay? This isn't Han Feitz's bureaucracy. There will always be lower underling chiefs who will continue to raid the sedentary state. And eventually, what also happens with these treaties is that when the Song Dynasty sends out 1.5% of its annual tax revenue in exchange for not having to fight the nomads, the nomads get wealthier. Suddenly, even if they don't go on any raids whatsoever, the Khan can give out silk bolts and silver to more and more potential allies. Okay? And they're happy to come on board. You're actually... You know, making the nomadic confederation stronger by giving him all that wealth that he then re redistributes to new followers. And when he has new followers, well, then he needs more wealth. Well, what's the Khan going to do? He's going to do the exact same thing that his underlings do without his permission. He's either going to say, I'd like to renegotiate a treaty or I'm going to go on another raid again because I need more money to support my growing following. All right, this is the slippery slope I'm talking about. Now, neither side can get out of it. In 1042, 37 years after the Treaty of Shanyuan, the Song Dynasty comes back and says, okay, we'll renegotiate for you, you know, with you again. How about 300,000 bolts of silk this time and 200,000 ounces of silver, basically doubling the terms of the annual tribute? Well, what do you think is going to happen? You think the, 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 the Khan is going to say, thank you, now I'm happy for all eternity, we'll, we'll never bother you again? No! The same thing's going to happen. He's going to say, now I have more money, to invest in more allies, more followers, better weapons, and then I'm going to need more again. 
And eventually they're just going to say, wait a second, why negotiate all these treaties? We're now strong enough that we can kick their asses on our own. We don't need to be receiving handouts at their pleasure anymore. Let's go down and destroy the Song Dynasty. That's the greatest prize of all, isn't it? So then you start seeing the nomadic peoples take over larger and larger sections of sedentary agrarian communities. And now they have to rule these, these communities. You can't rule a farmland in accordance with the laws of the pasture land. You have to learn how to be farmers, or at least a, be an administrator over people who are farmers. This leads to the creation of a northern hybrid state, which is characterized by a dual administration. Okay. Once the nomads start to take over sedentary plots of land themselves, the nature of their administration has to change. Okay, you start having a stable tax revenue rooted in agriculture that you are invested in now. You can't go back to being a nomad anymore. You can't run away. You actually have a base that you didn't have before that can be attacked and can be destroyed. And then you'll lose the tax revenue from that base and then your followers, if they don't get that tax revenue in the form of gifts, they're going to be annoyed at you and they're going to fight you. And then the confederation falls apart. You see how this has a momentum all its own. So the nomads, now that they've got, you know, several hundred miles, square, square miles of farmland that they rule over, they have to create what's known as a dual administration in which they say, okay, we're going to have one system of rule for the northern lands where our nomads still live. And we're going to have another system of rule for the sedentary agricultural lands. So we're going to try to rule the agricultural lands in accordance with their own system that already existed before we got here. And we're going to keep the two sides separate from one another. They're not supposed to mix. Okay? And what you'll see is an administrative division of labor as well. All right? The nomads will recruit Chinese officials from the heartland, from the sedentary lands. They'll say, it'd be best if you guys ruled over this land yourself. You already have all the experience in doing this, keeping the extensive bureaucracy that's essential to rule over these sedentary farmlands. Okay? But those Chinese officials will not be allowed to rule the northern zone nomadic peoples. So you'll have this dynamic in which the nomadic peoples can rule anywhere. They can be eventually posted as officials over farmlands, and they can be officials over nomadic tri uh, uh, tribal lands. But the Chinese officials will only be allowed to rule over the sedentary farmlands. Usually that's how it's going to work. This is an ironic inversion of how it is today, in the 20th century and the 21st century, in which you have a multi-ethnic state like China, um, in which it's the Han officials who are allowed to rule anywhere. Han officials can be posted to Tibet, to Xinjiang, to Inner Mongolia. Uh, but a Uyghur official from Xinjiang or a Tibetan official from Tibet is pretty much only going to be posted to Tibet or Xinjiang. A Tibetan official is not going to be sent to the province of Hunan and, you know, is going to be a county prefect or magistrate or official or whatever the term is over a million Han subjects. That doesn't happen. All right, that's an illustration of the reversal of the, the, the balance of power that has happened since the age of industrial uh, in, industrial 
industrialization. Okay. Um, on a most basic level, how are the nomads going to change their cultural identity as they take over sedentary lands of the Huaxia culture sphere? Okay. Well, they have to. Ha- they, ha- they have to. They have to create some new ethnic categories. And they have to try to reinterpret some of the ideas of what constitutes civilized versus uncivilized people. And we have an entire episode that's going to come in two or three episodes in which we're going to talk about the origins of the term Han, where this comes from. All right, it's actually a northern hybrid state, former nomadic peoples, who will create that term. It's not the Han themselves who call themselves the Han. All right. Northern hybrid states will actually do most of the ethnic legwork, ethnic categorization legwork in East Asian history, not the southern Chinese states. Okay, But they will also do the most to resist the identification of the word Han with Huaxia. And this is so important for our understanding of the history of identity politics in continental East Asia. Because today you have this ridiculous phrase, Han Chinese, which essentially is redundant and says, hey, Han equals Chinese. Okay, the nomads would have resisted that to the death. Okay, they said absolutely Han does not equal Chinese or Huaxia, which is a historical term I want you to be thinking in terms of. They say, uh-uh, Huaxia does not equal Han. Because we're Huaxia. Also, that's what the nomadic peoples do when they take over lands of literacy and cities. They will legitimize their rule and their presence by also claiming Huaxia cultural status. And they're fortunate that the Confucian ideology facilitates this very easily. Remember Xunzi, the greatest Confucian of all time? Xunzi says that babies in the Huaxia lands and babies among the northern barbarians cry the same at birth. It's only circumstances that change what they become later on. Remember his infamous example of the orchid root soaked in urine. It's nurture, not nature. Okay? Only when the baby is soaked in urine (laughs) do they become barbarian nomads. If they aren't soaked in urine, then they become fragrant civilized Huaxia. Okay? The nomads love this Confucian ideology because it suits them very well. They say, well, maybe our distant ancestors used to be barbarians, but not anymore. We're not our barbarians anymore. We have attained the virtue that all Confucian philosophers said was so important to becoming a gentleman. And thus, we have the right to claim the mandate of heaven over the Huaxia culture sphere. The first regent of the first emperor of the Manchu-led Qing dynasty in the 17th century said, quote, The empire is not an individual's private empire. Whosoever possesses virtue holds it. Okay, it's very important for him to make that claim. He's using Confucian ideology to justify the rule of non-Huaxia people over the Huaxia culture sphere. All that matters is that the ruler has virtue. There's no inherent birthright or racial genetic makeup that creates a ruler. We subscribe to the Confucian classics, then we have virtue. And we can rule over you. Okay. Unlike the southern Chinese states, however, 
the Northerners will also maintain additional politicized ethnic and cultural identities. Okay? For instance, they'll say, we are now Huaxia, just like you guys were. But now we need to sort of distinguish among the different types of Huaxia, because we don't want you to just think that everyone in Huaxia is the same. We're better than you, actually. We conquered you, therefore we're better. And we're proud of our heritage, and we don't want to lose our heritage. So we need a separate identity within the Huaxia category that says that we're all civilized, but we're a special kind of civilized. We are Mongol Huaxia. We are Manchu Huaxia. We are Kitan Huaxia. We are Jurchen Huaxia. And if you want to, so, you know, gloss Huaxia as Chinese, then we actually can have a very accurate reading of this idea of Han Chinese. If we think of Chinese as Huaxia, a umbrella cultural category to which many different identities can be subsumed under. In that sense, Han Chinese is not an oxymoron and an anachronistic misreading of East Asian history, but only if you think of Chinese as this cultural umbrella, not an ethnic identity. Then you could absolutely say Khitan Chinese, Manchu Chinese, Mongol Chinese, and Han Chinese. You could absolutely do that, and that would be accurate. That would be an accurate reflection of how the people, historical actors themselves, during the northern hybrid states, during these empires of the steppe, thought of themselves. Okay? Huaxia, or Chinese, was a catch cultural phrase of civilized people, and there's many different types of civilized people within that umbrella. Now, not only that, the northern hybrid states, the, the elites, the emperor, the ruler, will have different faces for different constituencies in his empire. Okay? Remember the, the emperor of the first empire, the Qin Empire. All right, he came up with the idea of Huangdi, a new word, what we now translate as emperor. Previously, there were only kings. And whenever you think of Chinese dynasties, you think of an, uh, uh, of an emperor, uh, uh, Huangdi. Alright? The Northern Hybrid States will say, emperor is not enough. An emperor, that's the word that is used to portray the rule of the supreme human to the original Huaxia culture sphere, the sedentary farmlands, and their customs. It, 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 that is a term created in accordance with their own customs. But we have other constituencies that aren't farmers, and they, have, they, they, they believe in different religions. And we need different terms, different faces for the ruler that reflect that. We're not just an emperor. Yes, we are an emperor, and that's how we identify ourselves when we address ourselves to our Han subjects. But when we address ourselves to our Tibetan subjects or our Mongol subjects, or our Uyghur subjects, we need other identities. Because they're not familiar with this emperor thing that, that arose in a different cultural context. So they'll say, when I address my nomadic brethren, I don't call myself the emperor, I call myself the Khan, or the Khagan. When I address the preeminent Tibetan spiritual ruler, I don't refer to myself as a Khan or an emperor. I refer to myself as a Chakravartin a spiritual being in Tibetan Buddhism who turns the, the Dharma wheel. There are multiple different identities for different constituencies of their empire. 
All right, in addition to emperor. Not only that, they will also undertake cosmopolitan unification projects, like any empire has to do. All right, the northern hybrid states will also do this. One of my favorite is what the Mongols do, Kublai Khan, after he takes over all of China, defeats the Song Dynasty, and then sets up his own Yuan Dynasty in Chinese style. All right, as a perfect example, Kublai Khan will create a Chinese-style dynasty known as the Yuan Dynasty. But he rules over more than just China. He rules over an enormous section of Central Asia, Inner Asia, and East Asia. Okay, and he's only emperor to what we think of today as the heartland of China. He has other identities. Khan, Chakravartin, okay, the Guanyin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, perhaps. And probably not him, it would probably be someone else who would have that. But regardless, these are just examples of different ultimate identities that the ruler can have. Okay, so Kublai Khan will say, we need a new script. We need a new script that can reflect the sounds of the two major official languages of the Yuan Dynasty, Mongol and Chinese, Mongolian and Chinese. But I don't want to draw this script from either Chinese or Mongol. I want it to be a neutral script. So no one can say I'm favoring one side or the other. So he actually commissions a Tibetan monk to create a new script, and the script will take its name among historians from the name, the you know, the surname of the monk himself, the Fagspuk script. It'll be a square script that takes elements of the Tibetan script. See, it's not drawn from Mongolian or Chinese, takes elements of the Tibetan script and adapts it to record the syllabic sounds of the two major official languages of the new empire, Mongolian and Chinese, without privileging either Mongolian or Chinese. And for about 100 years, 150 years, the Fagspa script is in use. This never gets really all that popular. Uh, but the fact that Kublai Khan thought that he should create a neutral, brand new script that wasn't drawn from either the pre-existing Mongolian or Chinese script is a great indicator of the unifying cosmopolitan projects that huge northern hybrid states like Kublai Khan's Yuan Dynasty feel compelled to undertake. Okay, What you'll also see under northern hybrid states is you'll see what I, I like to refer to as reverse affirmative action. Right? We think of the idea of affirmative action today as something that um, oftentimes it's the majority portion of the privileged population that adopts policies designed to benefit, in theory at least, uh, the disadvantaged minority populations. Okay, that's affirmative action today. At least that's the, 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 uh, uh, the goal behind it. Right? The motivation behind creating affirmative action policies, whether or not it actually plays out like that in practice is a different question, but that's the motivation behind it. Right? The northern hybrid states will do the opposite of that. They'll actually adopt policies that discriminate against the demographic majority Han subjects, or anyone who resisted their conquest. And they will adopt policies that repeatedly, generation after generation, reward the minority conquerors and their descendants, or Han supporters. Han supporters can also get lumped in with the privileged minority if they supported the conquest and helped the nomadic peoples conquer the rest of the land. Okay, This is affirmative action that's aimed at shoring up the privileges of a tiny nomadic conquering elite so that they can assure 
ensure that they aren't overtaken by what is often going to be seen as the superior cultural and educational and economic power of the subjects that they now rule over. They don't want to be assimilated, all right? They don't want to be have a tide of Han scholars, uh, you know, run circles around them. They want to have policies that make sure that Mongols, Manchus, Khitan, Jurchen uh, will always be in privileged positions of authority for many, 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 many generations to come. One of my favorite examples is how the Mongols were, and the Manchus, actually, the, the Qing dynasty, 1644 to 1911, uh, the, you know, the largest and most stable northern hybrid state, one of the most successful empires in human history, really. Uh, the Manchus, who are more from northeastern part of what we now think of as China, uh, the rooster head up in the northeast, um, they'll actually institute exam quotas for different provinces. Uh, you know, you have, you'll, we'll talk about this in a later episode. There'll be an, a civil service examination by which uh, officials will be recruited from the general population. And the Manchus will actually have sort of, you know, dual tracks of promotion into the bureaucracy in which getting a position in the official imperial bureaucracy during the Qing dynasty is much easier for someone of Manchu or Mongol descent, or the descent of a Han who supported the conquest. Okay, whereas all the southern Han in the Jiangnan area, literally south of the river, present day, you know, Suzhou, Nanjing, Shanghai, that area, uh, the demographic, cultural, economic powerhouse of southern China, um, if left to their own devices, with no quotas whatsoever for certain regions of the empire, the scholars of Jiangnan would dominate the bureaucracy. They would just win all the, the slots. And the Manchus said, no, we don't want to be overwhelmed and surrounded by haughty, arrogant scholars from southern China. There's going to be a quota in which the number of scholars from that region is fixed. And alternatively, the path up into the Qing bureaucracy for Manchus, Mongols, and, 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 and Han who supported us will be significantly easier. And so even though the Manchus and Mongols and the Han allies were a minuscule portion of the population at large during the Qing dynasty, I mean, we're talking probably no more than 5%, if that, of the whole population of the Qing dynasty, they probably held at least 50% of all the positions in the Qing government. Okay? And they also enshrined these differences, the discrimination between the two sides, in space as well. Okay, when Manchus or Mongols or any non-Han conquerors had to live in the Han heartland in great numbers, not just, you know, a lone official, they often would be segregated within special walled garrisons that were separate from the general Han population. And the idea was to try to keep these populations separate. We don't want them to mix and dilute, you know, the imagined martial vigor of our nomadic ancestors. Okay. It didn't always work like that in practice, and these walled garrisons were often porous, and people did go in and out, uh, but the idea behind it was the same. Right. Uh, and it's sort of an ironic footnote to this, and during the 1911 revolution, when the Manchu dynasty is overthrown, these walled garrisons are a very convenient way for Han revolutionaries to identify exactly where the, 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 the Manchus are, 
and slaughter every last one of them <laughs> during the revolution uh, because they were spatially segregated within these walled garrisons. It was easy to identify who a Manchu was, even if they spoke Chinese by that point. And you couldn't you know, identify by voice or even by dress, really, necessarily, um, that they were different than you. What you'll also see during northern hybrid states, you'll also see different types of what I refer to as dependent intermediaries. What is a dependent intermediary? Well, it's exactly like the name suggests. An intermediary is someone who mediates between two, two strata of uh, a, 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 a bureaucracy or a political organization in general. Okay, a middleman. All right? And dependent, they're dependent on you, the ruler. They can't go anywhere else. They can't find another patron because they are utterly dependent on you and therefore they are utterly loyal to you. Well, this is very useful for empires or any large state. Okay, you want to have a core of officials, of helpmates, you know, bureaucratic helpmates who can carry out sensitive tasks and specialize in certain roles without having to rely on the normal course of recruitment with all of its restrictions and rules and whatnot. You want to just have a ready source of talent and labor that is utterly dependent on you and therefore unlikely to rebel because they have nowhere to escape to if you withdraw your favor. Now, when you're talking about the southern states, the southern Chinese states, where you don't have a lot of ethnic difference, okay? These dependent intermediaries are usually eunuchs. Where do eunuchs come from? They come from the margins of society. They're often taken from uh, uh, military battlegrounds on the fringes of the state, in which people from different ethnic backgrounds, oftentimes, uh, will be conquered, taken as hostages, and then forcibly castrated and sent to the imperial capital to serve as eunuchs. Alternatively, sometimes they can be um, marginal people who live in the cities, beggars and whatnot, people who have no other prospects, no other family or support network, and they can apply to become a eunuch. Um, and, you know, there's a risk that you might die from being castrated, but there's a very good chance that you'll survive the castration. And if you survive, well, you might get entrance into the palace. Well, that's a much better life. But the reason you're attractive, the reason there is a job opening for a eunuch that you can apply to, is because the emperor wants someone who's utterly dependent on him and has no other connections. Okay, and you, so you can see the source of the tension that will arise in the future when great numbers of eunuchs are introduced into the southern Chinese states. Because they will be used in great numbers. They'll be used to watch over the harem. They'll be special advisors to the emperor. They'll often be put in charge of military tasks, sensitive military tasks, or tax, uh, tasks that require large amounts of money. And the emperor says, I don't trust my scholars who came up from the civil service examination system. They form a whole separate interest group all of their own. I need someone I can trust. And the eunuchs oftentimes raised the emperor. They cleaned out his poop bowl every day. Oftentimes the most intimate emotional connection that the emperor or many officials will have, high you know, officials um, in the imperial aristocracy, will be with eunuchs. They'll be the only people that the emperor can feel like he, he can actually let his guard down and talk like a normal human being, and you're not plotting to overthrow me. They'll see him like, like a mother, and very non-threatening often too, because they aren't real men, so to speak. 
All right, and you can see the Confucian officials who have worked their asses off for 40 years to pass the test and get into the bureaucracy will be very bitter at the easy influence that eunuchs seem to have accrued. How, how, how dare these, these abominations of nature gain entrance into the inner court and, and have the emperor's ear? What did they do to deserve this? They just got their testicles cut off. This isn't fair. And now they have all this undue emotional influence over the emperor that I can't get? So, Confucian officials hate the eunuchs. The eunuchs hate the Confucian officials. But if you're a southern Han dynasty, that tension ain't going away. Because eunuchs are your dependent intermediaries. In northern hybrid states, your dependent intermediaries are not eunuchs. You have some eunuchs, but the number of eunuchs in northern hybrid states is tiny compared to the southern Han states. The southern Han state, like the Ming, the Ming Empire, the biggest you know, southern Han state... You know, the Ming has something like 20,000 eunuchs in the imperial bureaucracy. The dynasty that follows it, the Qing, an even bigger state, has something like a 1,500 or 2,000 at the most. And they're mostly on harem duty, you know, just protecting the harem and wiping the emperor's butt when he's a kid. All right, that's the eunuch job then. Uh, because you have a different type of dependent intermediary with the northern hybrid state. You have ethnic outsiders that you can bring in in the course of your conquest. The Mongols will be, you know, the Mongols themselves are ethnic outsiders. They'll also bring in, from their conquests in Central Asia, they'll bring in Uyghurs, they'll bring in Arabs, they'll bring in Persians, and they'll post them to the Chinese heartland and give them jobs to do. That's your new dependent intermediary. What if that Persian official is unhappy? Well, what's he going to do? Run back to Persia? I don't think so. He's isolated. He's yours. You own him. His loyalty is unquestionable, just like the eunuch. During the Qing dynasty, the Manchus will use Mongols. Uh, they'll be known as bannermen. Bannermen who joined the conquest early. Mongols, Manchus, uh, nor nor northeastern Han who assisted in the conquest. Those are your dependent intermediaries. They're far from their homelands and they're not going back. They're committed to your enterprise, for better or for worse, to the bitter end, just like a eunuch. Now, between these states, you also have very different strategic aims. Okay? Northern hybrid states, the states founded by nomads, the agricultural heartland is only one thing that you're targeting. And even that was sort of by accident. You didn't really initially mean to take over the entire Han heartland. Okay, you are always constantly aware of other possible tribal confederations to your rear and on your flank. Okay, you are a nomadic confederation yourself. You know how nomads think, you know how they work. And so you're more hypersensitive to the threat that they pose to your confederation. And you have to guard against the rise of other confederations behind you and to the side. All right, so oftentimes you'll see nomadic groups engage and continue to fight and try to absorb other nomadic confederations for far longer than a sedentary state would ever do. All right, the Mongols keep going all the way to Europe. The Qing dynasty, the Manchus, are not going to be content with just taking the southern Han heartland. They're also going to say, even though we're allied to some of the Mongols, there are other Mongols who are not in our alliance and they continue to pose a threat to us. 
So they take out the, the, the Western Mongols. Then they get to Western Mongolia and they say, you know what, there's a threat of another confederation in Xinjiang. We need to go and conquer that as well. They get down there and they realize, you know what, the Tibetans, a lot of the Tibetan economy was pastoral in the old days. Um, and they say, you know, we, we, we have to tame Tibet as well. Like the sort of things that a southern Han state would never conceive of. Because they know it's not possible. Logistically, it's just not possible for a southern sedentary state to conquer all of these semi-nomadic lands. Um, this is one reason why the northern hybrid states are so dang large. Whenever you have one of these massive empires that spans you know, all the way inner Asia plus the Han heartland and Tibet and all that, you know you're dealing with a northern hybrid state. You're not dealing with a southern Han state. And then finally, you have the question of cult culture, cultural tensions. This is a big problem because you're a minority. You're a minority conqueror. And you've set up affirmative action institutions to ensure that your privileges remain no matter what. But even as your privileges remain and you continue to serve in the highest levels of the imperial bureaucracy, your culture will change whether you like it or not. And remember, it's not assimilation. Never assim This assimilation thing is a horrible concept to think about. All right? It's the creation of a new hybrid that is neither that nor this. And it feels alien to all people involved in the merger and creation of a new identity. And oftentimes, the, 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 this will get glossed as assimilation. But assimilation just means that one side disappears into another with no trace. And that's not what's happening. Okay, But the cultural tension in northern hybrid states will be between conservatives and progressives, people who say we need to preserve our own culture, Okay, uh, the culture of our ancestors, versus others will say in order to rule over the sedentary state, we need to adopt more sedentary customs, i.e. Chinese habits. And this will lead to a lot of hybrid amalgams and awkward compromises, and they're all different in each state. And there's fascinating case studies that we don't have time to go into here. I'm just going to give you a few examples of the strange compromises that will occur. Um, these are some of the most colorful and interesting aspects of northern hybrid states. The Jurchens, who will create the Jin Dynasty in the 1100s and the 1200s in northern China. Uh, they will create a civil service examination system in the Jurchen language, but one that takes its content from the Confucian classics but they're not studying Chinese. They're taking it in Jurchen. Another policy will be that the Jurchen will say that no Jurchen is allowed to wear the same clothing as the Han wear. But it's okay for Han and Jurchen to intermarry. The Kitan, who will create the Liao dynasty in about the year 1000 AD. The Kitan acculturated the most, and they'll take a Chinese-style script, surnames, the Chinese calendar, rituals, Exams? Okay, the Mongols will abolish the exams altogether for a while. They say, no, 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 this is, this is a path for Chinese domination of the bureaucracy. We're going to get rid of the exams altogether, but then they'll reinstate it later on when they say, you know what, we need some more cultural administrative talent that only the Han from the South can provide. Uh, we can't do away with the exams. The Manchus, the Qing Dynasty, 1644 to 1911, will prohibit their own women from binding their feet. They'll say only Han women can bind their feet. Manchu women cannot bind their feet. And yet they'll impose their own hairstyle, known as the Q, 
long braided, uh, you know, sort of pigtail that goes down the back, and then you shave the front of the head. They'll impose that hairstyle on all Han subjects as a sign of submission. But then they'll turn around and say, you know what, some of our other non-Han elites, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, the Mongols, you're allowed to wear the Manchu queue, not as a sign of submission and humiliation, but as a sign of honor and promotion. So you have all kinds of fascinating ways of dealing with the, you know, the fact of cultural change that's going to occur once you take over culturally alien lands. Now, the problems. The more sedentary wealth you take over, the more you begin to resemble the state you once preyed upon. All right, as I said, you're not assimilating, but you are committing to the running of a sedentary bureaucracy. You become more of a couch potato. You can't run away like you could before. And you're, you have a heightened awareness of the other nomads behind you, and they're always itching to treat you like you once treated other sedentary states before you. More militarily vigorous tribal confederations will target you. And once they take over part of your lands, they will then come to resemble a sedentary state as well. We have this wonderful succession of three different major tribal confederations from about the mid-10th century AD to the 13th century, the middle of the 13th century, in which you will see the Khitan people, the Jurchen people, and the Mongol people each start out as sort of borderland raiders. And then each one will get more and more successful. They're all preying on the Song Dynasty, by the way. Poor Song Dynasty. Uh, constantly afflicted by uh, a succession of nomadic peoples. Uh, well, heck, all southern Han states that get big will have to deal with constant nomadic harassment. The Ming Dynasty will deal with it as well. In fact, the Ming Dynasty, um, 1368 to 1644, will start in the south. They'll set up their first capital in Nanjing in the south, and then they'll eventually move it to Beijing once they realize the greatest strategic threat to their existence are the Mongols in the north. The Mongols were never defeated. Genghis Khan's descendants were never actually defeated. They just retreated back to the north. They're still there. And the Ming will undergo one of the greatest humiliations in all of Chinese history. They'll have an actual emperor at the Battle of Tumu. They'll have an actual emperor get captured in battle by the Mongols. But the Mongols don't kill the emperor. They try to use him as ransom collateral. And the Ming say, no, 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 we're not going to let, let, let you have that leverage over us. We're just going to set up his brother as the new emperor. After 10 years, the Mongols say, well, we don't want this brother, you know, the original emperor anymore. He's useless. They let him go. And he goes back into the capital and you have two brothers, both emperors, uh, duke it out among each other. Um, that thought maybe that was a Mongol strategy for sowing internal discord. Uh, send back an, uh, uh, emperor number two uh, uh, yeah, to, to destabilize the court. Um, anyways. Okay, the Khitan will prey upon the Song, start to take over sedentary lands in the north, get wealthier and wealthier, and then the Jurchen behind them will say, hey, the Liao are now a sitting duck for us. And they'll start to prey on the Liao. And then the Mongols will come in, and they'll say, both the Khitan and the Jurchens have adopted many sedentary ways, and they too are sitting ducks now. And the Mongols then treat both the Khitan and the Jurchens as the Khitan and Jurchens once treated the Song. In fact, by the time the Mongols conquered the last of the Khitan, 
The Khitan had adopted so many customs from the Huaxia culture sphere that the Mongols used their word for Khitan, Kitai, as their word for Chinese, because to them, the Khitan had become synonymous with Huaxia, with Chinese. And so the Mongol word for both Khitan and the Chinese, Kitai, becomes Marco Polo's cafe, who allegedly visits during the Mongol era. This word survives today in cafe airlines as an alternative word for China that has survived. It's not the main one, uh, but it's out there. Uh, cafe as a, as a, a synonym for China. Um, and that is a result of the Mongols thinking that the Khitan looked so much like the Chinese by that point, what they, re- what, 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 what they imagined the Chinese looked like in customs and bureaucracy and whatnot, that they just said they're one and the same. Now, the fate of the northern hybrid state, it's not a pretty one. Okay, remember those three advantages we talked about before? They're all going to go by the wayside, starting in about the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution. Okay, horses will be made obsolete, more or less, by industrial warfare. You know, gun, repeating guns, mechanized warfare, tanks, all that kind of stuff. Horses don't stand a chance anymore. They will be replaced by mechanized industrial warfare and eventually real tanks. All right. Um, as the middleman for trade, that protection racket, well, the rise of a maritime economy will undermine that significantly. It's going to be so much easier and quicker and cost-effective to travel by water than it will be by land. And, you know, overland travel never really ends. That's sort of a myth that uh, oftentimes gets perpetuated. Um, but it's not going to be as lucrative anymore as maritime routes are. All right, and that's, you know, by the, about the time of the Mongols or so, after the Mongols, the maritime routes will really pick up. Um, and, the, and the nomads will lose that advantage of being uh, the protectors of the steppe and the overland trade routes across Eurasia. Um, and also their military evasiveness, the fact that they had no base and you couldn't really ever totally destroy the nomads, that'll disappear as well. Once you get into industrialization, you're going to start having uh, the technological ability to create new forms of chemical fertilizers that will turn once unproductive pasture land into productive farmland. Sometimes, not, not, not across the board, but more often than not, you'll be able to grow crops on land that once was deemed totally unsuitable for crops. And it was totally unsuitable for crops. It was only suitable for occasional seasonal grazing. Now that's not the case anymore. Technology has transformed those and you can actually move settlers into that region. Overpopulation of the sedentary lands, which will be facilitated by new food sources. You know, all the things that are happening in the 18th and 19th century, you're going to have an explosion of sedentary population. They're going to be moving in to the borderlands and trying their luck on the fringes of deserts and steppe. And new technology and fertilizers will allow them to have some success at that. Even in areas where you can't really transform the fragile steppe into productive farmland, um, they're still going to try, <laughs> okay? Because now, you know, these scientists are so confident that they can transform the step that even if ultimately they fail, they're still going to try to do it with disastrous consequences. And when they fail and they destroy the land so that it's no, it's no longer suitable for farming or pasturing, um, the end result for the nomads is still the same. You've lost the basis of your livelihood, You can no longer pasture your domesticated animals there anymore. And so today, the historical prominence, this outsized role that nomads played in the history, the the political and military history of Eurasia, 
Um, we often forget about this today. All right, industrialization eventually made these people appear inept and powerless. And they became depend they, they became poverty-stricken supplicants, dependent on the largesse of industrialized sedentary states. And by the 20th century, there really are no more powerful nomadic confederations anymore. All their advantages have been wiped away by industrialization and new tech- scientific technology. And then you have this ideology in the 20th century of the nation-state, which has almost never been created on the ground in practice, but is this ideal of self-rule, that nation and state should be aligned. We should all be ruled by people who look like us and talk like us and are our people. That almost never actually gets put in practice, and you know the state is only composed of the of of the people represented by their rulers. Um, regardless, that ideal of self-rule will will pass a negative judgment on anything that can be construed as foreign occupation or alien conquerors. You know, but you know, natives ruling natives was the exception in the pre-industrial world, not the norm. Or even in England, think about well, you know, the royal family in England is almost all of Germanic heritage, and they had to adopt a new uh, uh, family name after World War One because of German uh, uh, anti-German phobias and sentiment in England. Uh, the Royal House of Windsor—that's a name that's only a hundred years old. Uh, there were like Saxe Coburg or whatever. There, there, there was some you know hardcore German name. <laughs> they were outsiders. Okay, but over the course of the 20th century, everyone has tried to uh, indigenize themselves and make themselves look as though we come from this area and we belong here. We're not outsiders because being an outsider ruling over other people is delegitimized in the 20 in the 20th century. But that was the norm prior to the Industrial Revolution. Culturally alien outsiders ruling over culturally alien subjects was the norm throughout Eurasian history. Now, next time, we're going to switch gears a little bit from all this politics and philosophy that we've been mired in for the, for the past 10 episodes or so, and we're going to switch to religion. We're going to get some religion in the next two episodes. First, we're going to talk about the major religions of the East Asian continental heartland, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, the religious elements of Confucianism, followed by an episode on Islam. I hope you'll join me. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) 